Um, so, I think the guys knew when they asked me to do failure that I'm very good at failing, um, which is part of the reason they asked me to do it. So, um, I think we often kind of talk about the victorious Christian life, and Jesus' victory means that we live victoriously. But I think um, the truth is probably that we all deal with defeat and failure quite a lot, if not all the time, because none of us will always perfectly appropriate the victory that Jesus won over sin for us on the cross. So, for example, I mean, I've failed so many times already today. I failed to stop at a red light when I was coming here, which wasn't, I mean, safety failures are probably fairly high up on the list of things not to do. But um, actually, to be fair, the fact that I'm here and I have makeup on is, I'm very like I'm winning already. But um, driving tests. Uh, some of you may know where I'm going with this. Sean is smirking from the back. Uh, hands up, who's failed a driving test? Not many of you have failed driving tests. Or, okay, who's, 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 ta- who's not taken a driving test? Okay, that makes you feel slightly better. <laughs> who's failed two driving tests? Who's failed three? Okay, I failed, failed six driving tests. I know. Um, but I persevered, sweet little 17-year-old that I was, desperate to drive, because that's the only option on the Isle of Man. Um, and my, bless her, my mum bought me a card on the first test that I took and wrote in it and kept it for, I, it must have been about two years, um, and gave it to me in the end. And she's like, I'm so glad you've got this, partly because I probably cost her £3,000. Anyway, so I'm good at failing. And I'm sure we all um, can relate, if not to driving tests. I'm actually a quite a safe driver, just to add. I think persistence means that, yeah, somehow I'm good. Um, So although um, that isn't the kind of failure that can necessarily define our lives, on the road to maturity and even after reaching a certain degree of spiritual maturity, which I imagine most of us have, we will still sin and fail, and sometimes seriously so. And I don't think in church or even in home groups with our friends we'd like to admit it, but there is a lot of failure around us and within us. And failure is a fact of life for the Christian community. But God's grace is more than adequate to overcome any situation, as we'll see this morning. And the mature Christian is one who has learned to believe and apply God's remedy for failure. So um, I'm going to make a few observations I've made of failure. And then we'll look at the example that's on the handouts um, from Scripture to serve as a model for us, to illustrate how we can learn from our failures rather than let them define us. So we won't necessarily be doing an exegesis of the passage on the handouts, but um, we'll just kind of touch on a few things. So firstly, what is fear of failure, and why do we fear it so much? Um, When we repeatedly fail, privately or publicly, in the same area, it can be fairly excruciating. And I think sometimes we feel that public failures are just so obvious to those around us, and often this is the thing that scares us the most. Certainly failures that public scare me more than failures I can hide away from other people. And I think that's mainly because fear of failure is very much linked to another topic that we've looked at um, before in these sessions, which is fear of others' opinions of us. Which, if we dig down deep into that, is really, I think, a fear of people rejecting us or abandoning us. Um, We fear that our failure will one day lead us, um, lead our friends or our bosses or even our family, to a point where they've just had enough of our repeated falls. We fear their opinion of our reputation. We fear their reproach. We fear what they will say, what they will think of us. Will they leave me? Will they hate me? Will they fire me? 
will I lose their respect? And I sometimes, these next couple I particularly relate to, will they think I'm a bad Christian? Will I get in their way of coming to know Jesus? And linked to being afraid of what others think is the fact that we can sometimes also buy into the lie that we can chase God away with our repeated failures, that he will eventually run out of patience with us, that he'll have had enough of our failings and become distant to us. And I think this is something that even if we don't consciously admit, because we know it um, in our heads that that's not what the Bible says, it can still be a subconscious fear because we doubt his goodness to us. And we may believe deep down that because of our failings, he will become distant and disapproving. And I think these reasons debilitate us from fulfilling our purpose if we stay completely paralysed by these um, fears, by the, we stay paralysed in this place. So that's the first thing about failure, is that it's probably linked to, to fear of what others think and what God thinks. My second observation is that we sometimes fear failure because of the shame and the self-reproach we experience as a result of failing. Um, we're so afraid to fail because we're afraid of the deep sense of shame that comes with it. That's something I can really relate to. Even a private sin or a failure can make us feel so ashamed of ourselves that kind of that it almost sits on you as a weight. And all the more so if it's the same old sin, the same old sin pattern we can't get ourselves out of. And I think, as, particularly as women, we're really good at beating ourselves up in a way that simply is not how God would have us think. And don't get me wrong, the Holy Spirit convicts us of sins. But once we say we're sorry, we're forgiven, and it's done. But the reality, if you're anything like me, is that we kind of self-flagellate and let feelings of shame and self-pity lead us. And I think we're really slow to live in the truth of our forgiveness and God's truth. I always think that um, letting those kind of feelings lead us it's like trying to hang on to a clutch of puppies' leads when they're all running in different directions. You've got kind of ten puppies in your hand, and it's exhausting and it's confusing, and we're constantly being pulled in different directions by our emotions, by our puppies. Um, and it's, it's exhausting. It's tiring. It's, being led by our feelings is, um, is not the best way to, to live. So we can easily forget that we're saved by grace. And to fixate on our feelings of shame and possibly false guilt about our failures means we live out of, the, out of the lie that we are saved by works. We're slow to accept God's, God's promise that there is no condemnation in Christ. Often we can't quite believe how good God is. I think this is often because we don't fully appreciate or believe just how much he loves us. We can never fully grasp this, but we sometimes don't even grasp it um, in a human way, especially when we fail. <clears throat> so I think we have a double problem, not trusting God's goodness and therefore not understanding how loved we are. We know, as I said in our heads, that God's love, God loves us. But I think we can believe in our subconscious, or in our hearts, that he only tolerates us because he has to. Which obviously couldn't be further from the truth. His love is one that passes all of our understandings. When we believe this more and more, asking him to enlighten us, and inviting the Holy Spirit to increasingly trust and understand this love, we see that he has qualified us into, and calls us into, his presence. He wants us to boldly enter his throne room, to shine with his presence, and revel in his acceptance, and in the light and power of knowing we're loved. And we can then do big things for his kingdom, living out of that power. God accepts us freely and enthusiastically. We need just to accept and experience this in our hearts, not just know it intellectually with our heads, which we're good at doing at church, 
Our acceptance was based entirely on, on the works that he did as he hung there on the cross, not on how much we try and do for him. So that's my second observation, that we can fear failure because of the shame and self-reproach we experience as a result of not truly believing who God says we are, the apple of his eye, who he rejoices over with singing. My third observation um, on failure is that rather than dealing with it badly, as we've just talked about, we can be so fearful of it that we actually completely delude ourselves that we just don't ever fail. The official term for this is cognitive dissonance, I believe. Big words in this early morning. Basically, it means that either consciously or subconsciously, we may ignore our sins and failures because to admit them is to admit failure. And that's a plague worse than death. We want to retain an illusion that we're in control, even just to ourselves. I think control is such a big, big blocker to maturity in Christ. A blocker that I've increasingly come to see in my own life stunts my growth and stops me living in the freedom for which Christ died. Are we willing to let him have control of our lives, of our careers, our futures, our families, our marriages, our friendships, our bodies, and our failures? It's really scary to let the reins of our lives go, but the freedom we can experience by giving up control can transform our lives. I have um, several friends um, who have refused, who I just recognise um, that this is an issue for. They, they can't cope with control, can't cope with fa- uh, failure, so don't really even try. So they've applied, refused to apply for new jobs, or they've um, refused to take on responsibility, a particular responsibility at work, or in their families, or in their churches um, as well, for fear of failure. And they don't want to push themselves out of their comfort zones of control because they believe if they fail, they are either out of control and they hate that or that failure means they're no good. And it can be such a tragic waste of such wonderful potential and huge possibilities if we don't just try. And we deny failure because we think to fail means we're a bad or incapable person. And this means we're relying on our own strength rather than God's. And so we can believe that our identity is one of inescapable failure. And these messages, more often than not, originate from our enemy. They're subtle, so we often don't realise it. We think it's our thoughts. Actually, it's the enemy's thoughts. When we buy into those lies, we live under the power, under their power, rather than listening to what God says about us, and rather than accepting the Holy Spirit's prompts towards our own self-realisation. So my last little observation is that we need to be aware of false guilt over failures. I touched on false guilt earlier, but just to say that I think sometimes our definition of failure may be very different to God's definition of failure, especially when it comes to doing stuff for God. Remembering and trusting that simple faith pleases him means we don't need to labour under the condemning voice of a religious spirit. And a religious spirit will always condemn us falsely, that that we aren't doing enough for God. This is rubbish straight from the enemy, and we need to ensure we don't set up unbiblical measurements of success and failure. This isn't to say that we don't serve God, but that our motives, or rather our motives and heart, need to be pure before him. Not under self-condemnation, or under condemnation from our enemy. Like um, as a, a father who's got a child who's learning to draw, um, that father doesn't get cross when they're his toddler's drawings are completely indecipherable and a mummy looks just like a sheep and a tree. Um, God loves that we try, even if we don't get it right to begin with, 
just like a father would with a toddler. And I'm sure his main concern is that we give it a shot rather than refuse to try. Whether that means repairing or trying to um, make a friendship. Maybe it means applying for a new job. Maybe it means learning a new skill, serving in a new way, chasing a long-held dream. I suspect God's heart is to see us try, even if we do fail. And like with prayer, the reason many of us give up too soon is that we feel like we fail God if he hasn't answered our prayers in our timing. And that isn't failure. The only way we can fail in prayer is if we stop praying. Prayer is a no-lose proposition. And other things in life which we're tempted to give up on or not try for are similar. The only way to try, sorry, the only way to fail is not to try. And once we can understand these um, few truths, these observations I've made, it can um, reframe how we see ourselves when we fail, I think, and how with Jesus um, we can deal with failures. And we can deal with failure constructively by learning from others, others' failures particularly. And I think it's really encouraging to remember that the Bible is full of failures. And many of them are more obvious and dramatic than some of ours. Yet those failures, um, importantly, didn't keep each of the people who failed from effective service for God. Here's just four, and then we'll go on to look at um, Peter in particular. So Abraham, she should have stayed in the land and trusted God. But he feared being out of control, so he fled to Egypt because of the drought. And this is by no means the last, as we know, of Abraham's failures. Moses, in trying to help his people, ran ahead of God's timing and killed the Egyptian. And later, against God's command, he struck the rock in his anger. David, when he should have been out on the field of battle, he stayed at home and had an affair with a married woman, then plotted her husband's murder. Maybe because he feared what others would think of his failure, or maybe because he was in denial about the failure and wanted to cover it up. And then there's Peter, who we'll look at, who in in spite of his self-confidence and his great boast of how he would never deny Jesus, and he was already there, I think, in denial of any future potential failure, he promptly did just that. He deserted his best friend and his saviour, as did the rest of the disciples, actually, who fled um, as soon as Jesus was arrested. Now, what we can take away from all of these people's failures is that although all of them failed at some point, and all in significant ways, They not only recovered from their failure, but they used it as a tool of growth. They learned from it, confessed it to God, and were often able to be used in even mightier ways, precisely because of their blunders. And I think we really need to remember this, I certainly do. Failure is so often part of our growth. It can shape not only our experiences, but also our hearts, if we're willing to let him, rather than denying failure or being swamped by guilt or fear. God uses our failures as essential tools to train and develop us. If we choose to abide in him and ask for more understanding of his perspective on it, we will look at our growth and our journeys really differently, I think. And we will see failures as less and less shameful and less and less painful. So it's how we respond to failure that will determine our future. So let's look in more detail at Peter's failure and what we can learn from him. Um, So like I said, Peter experienced really blowing it. Um, can you imagine? I mean, we fail each other all the time. To actually literally fail Jesus face to face must have just been so awful. Um, but unlike us, he didn't just fail once. He repeated his failure publicly again and again. I just want to point out a few thoughts from these verses rather than going into them in detail. But let's um, read them first. 
Um, if three people could volunteer to read, that would be very kind. Hands up. Please, can you read John 13, please? 33 to 38. Hannah, can you read Mark 14, 66 to 72? <clears throat> One more. John, uh, John 21. Poor thing, please. <laughs> um, so the first chunk, John 13, is Peter vowing to lay down his life for Jesus. And Mark 14 is Peter denying he knows Jesus. And then John 21 is Jesus restoring Peter. I can't uh, compete with that volume level. (laughs) Maybe I can. Maybe you can. Let's read really loudly. Um, You can probably read. Probably hear from that. Uh, So John 13 beginning at 30. Oh, sorry. Yes, recording. I'm being recorded. Don't you know? Very good. I know. Got my best voice. Right. So yeah, John 13, beginning at 33. My children, I will be with you only a little longer. You will look for me, and just as I told the Jews, so I tell you now. Where I am going, you cannot come. A new command I give you, love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this all men will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. Simon Peter asked him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus replied, Where I am going, you cannot follow now, but you will follow later. Peter asked, Lord, why can't I follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Then Jesus answered, will you really lay down your life for me? I tell you the truth, before the cock crows, you will disown me three times. Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came by. When she saw Peter warming himself, she looked closely at him. You were with that Nazarene, Jesus, she said, but he denied it. I don't know or understand what you're talking about, he said, and went out into the entrance. When the servant girl saw him there, she said again to those standing around, this fellow is one of them. Again he denied it. After a little while, those standing near said to Peter, Surely you're one of those, for you are a Galilean. He began to call down curses on himself, and he swore to them, I don't know this man you're talking about. Immediately, the clock crowed the second time. Then Peter remembered the word Jesus had spoken to him. Before the cock crows twice, you will disown me three times. And he broke down and wept. And John 21. Afterwards, Jesus appeared again to his disciples by the Sea of Tiberias. It happened this way Simon Peter, Thomas called Didymus, Nathaniel from Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two other disciples were together. I'm going out to fish, Simon Peter told them, and they said, We'll go with you. So they went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples did not realize that it was Jesus. He called out to them, Friends, haven't you any fish? No, they answered. He said, Throw your net on the right side of the boat, and you will find some. When they did, they were unable to haul the net in because of the large number of fish. Then the disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, It is the Lord. 
As soon as Simon Peter heard him say, It is the Lord, he wrapped his outer garment around him, for he had taken it off, and jumped into the water. The other disciples followed in the boat, towing the net full of fish, for they were not far from shore, about a hundred yards. When they landed, they saw a fire of burning coals there with fish on it and some bread. Jesus said to them, Bring some of the fish you have just caught. Simon Peter climbed aboard and dragged the net ashore. It was full of large fish, 153, but even with so many the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, Come and have breakfast. None of the disciples dared ask him, Who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came, took the bread and gave it to them, and did the same with the fish. This was now the third time Jesus appeared to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. When they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you truly love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said, you know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you truly love me? He answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, Take care of my sheep. The third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, Do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said, Feed my sheep. I tell you the truth, when you were younger, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. Then he said to him, follow me. Thanks, guys. Um, So if you don't remember anything else from today, remember this, which we've already touched on, that Jesus didn't abandon Peter, despite the fact that Peter failed to say publicly. And having, um, having just said that he would never do that. And Jesus won't abandon you either. No matter how big or repeated your failures or your sins, it's just not something that we need to fear as sources of God. So firstly, let's consider Peter's example of how not to respond to failure. When we mess up, as we've, as we've seen, it's tempting to ignore it and run from it. Anything to spare us um, from owning up to it and dealing with the reproach of others and of ourselves. But denial or rationalisation or blaming others offers only an illusory reprieve. So um, firstly, where do we see Peter after he denied Jesus? The next thing we read about him after he went outside and wept bitterly, which is such a heartbreaking passage, isn't it? Um, Is that we we read that he's gone back to his old life. He's gone back to his comfort zone. He's retreated to the comfortable and easy thing he did before. I imagine trying to forget what he'd done. Um, But he didn't have such a great result with that. He wasn't catching anything, and in a similar way, neither were we. If we want things to change, if we want to learn from our failures, rather than living in fear of them or denying them, if we want to move into greater trust in God, we must remember that if we want something different to happen in our lives, we have to do something different to what we've been doing up to this point. If we want something different to happen, we've got to do something different um, to what we've been doing up to that point. Returning to our old way of life after a failure, no matter how easy or comfortable it might be, is not going to satisfy us, because it's not who Jesus has called us to be. That wasn't who Jesus called Peter to be, he, um, and it isn't who he calls us to be either. 
I very much doubt that after three years of living with Jesus and learning about Jesus, that God really meant Peter to go back to a boat to catch nothing. Um, no matter what our failures are, if we want to push past them and grow in God, doing the same old things will mean this is a slower process than if we go beyond our comfort zone. Doing something different, growing in God, might mean different things for all of us. It might mean discovering the joys and power of fasting. It might mean arranging a prayer triplet. Or renewing your commitment to read God's word in a more meaningful way than you've done up to that point. So try something new. Perhaps ask for words of knowledge, or ask for the gift of prophecy, or the gift of tongues. Go on a prayer walk, go to a conference, have your quiet time in a different place. Practice listening to God's still, small voice. Try asking God specific questions rather than vague ones so he can answer specifically, and I always find he does, even if you don't want to hear it. Just don't do the things you've done before. Using your fail- use your failures to leapfrog into a new season of growth. So that's how not to respond to failure. Secondly, we can learn um, from Peter's experience how our relationship with Jesus changes our response to failure. And as we know, our relationship with Jesus changes everything. If we grow in trusting the truths that we've already talked about, if we believe we're loved beyond our capacity to understand love, and if we believe we're saved by grace, our response to failure can be really different. As Sean read through John 21, there's four little things I just want to um, point out. I don't know if you noticed them. Firstly, when Peter recognised it was Jesus who was talking to them, he threw himself out of the boat and lunged towards him with all of his strength. Jesus comes to us as he did to Peter. He was the one to approach Peter. He came to him full of grace. He pursued him. And he does the same for us. And when we flounder in our failure, he reminds us of the way to get back on track, which is coming back into a relationship with him. He doesn't hide from us. We may not always necessarily be able to recognise his presence, even though it's always with us. But once we do recognise it, once we remember the truth, we, like Peter, are best served by getting to him as fast as we can. Don't hesitate to accept accept the reconciliation and restoration he offers you. I so often run in the opposite direction to God, rather than just dealing with my sin and failure with him. But I think this is such just such a wonderful picture of Peter's desperation for reinstatement of their relationship. He doesn't care if the others think he's weird for bolting out of the boat, and he seems to know innately in that, I think, that he, he will be accepted back. And so I think we can learn a lot from his response. So that's firstly, Jesus is the way out of failure. I think these are <laughs> Secondly, Jesus prioritised his relationship with Peter over the tasks he gave Peter to do. If you look down there, every time um, Jesus asked, do you love me, it always precedes feed or take care of my sheep. He wanted to reassure Peter of the importance of their relationship and friendship before him, Peter, being a servant. And I think it's a lovely reminder that God longs for us. As we've seen, his love is not conditioned upon our performance. Rather, our relationship with Jesus provides what we need to fulfil our purpose. I'm repeating myself to an extent, but it's worth getting into our heads, um, because I'm not very good at remembering it, so maybe you're not, that the reason we're alive is to love Jesus and to be loved by him, not to do stuff for him. Like the father-child analogy earlier, have you ever noticed the uh, faces parents make, particularly new parents, to babies? They smile inanely and go to great lengths to make their babies laugh or smile. And the joy they get after seeing the thoughtful smile um, delights their heart. 
And God is our loving parent who makes his face shine upon us. He searches for us and he wants us to, to love him and to smile for us, um, for him rather. He pursues us until we respond with love and joy and worship. We love because he first loved us. His highest priority for you is to love you and he will pursue you to love him too. There is a part of God's heart that only you can fill. So that's the second thing. Relationship leads to responsibility but relationship doesn't flow from how well we perform our responsibilities. Our failures don't affect how God sees us. Thirdly, for every instance of failure, Jesus offered an opportunity for reconciliation and restoration. Peter failed three times, not seven, as I did. So Jesus initiated three opportunities for Peter to repent. And he did so with grace and in a way that put the focus on the relationship and not the failure. He will give us as many chances as we need. No matter how many times we mess up or how big a mess we make, his grace is sufficient. Like it says in 2 Corinthians, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. So that's the third thing. For every failure, Jesus provides us with the opportunity to repent, to turn things around and get back on track. Fourthly and finally, Jesus told Peter that whatever happens in the future, Peter was to follow him. So the way through our inevitable failures and challenges is to keep following Jesus. We will fail, but we are told to keep going, as we looked at earlier. When you experience a heartbreak of failure, see and respond to his offer of reconciliation and restoration. Run to him and let his grace and love provide the safe space for you to come back, for you to come to terms with your failure and get back on track. James Dyson came up with 4,500 Hoover prototypes before he finally got one to work. Just a lot of prototypes. Um, and we will fail in this, maybe not making Hoovers, but we'll fail. And I think if we could admit that and just get to grips with that, um, it's helpful. But let's not stop trying. What would we do without Dyson Hoover? Um, I'm just going to finish with a, a quote from Hebrews, which I think is also on your sheet, um, just to encourage us. Let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. So that's the final thing. Whatever failures come, and they will, the way through them is to keep following Jesus. I'm just going to um, pray to, to end, and then there's a few um, thoughts on the sheet you might want to look at and pray through in groups. I think there's a few minutes. Okay. okay <clears throat> oh, Jesus, thank you for encouraging us. Thank you that um, you never give up on us. Thank you that um, no matter what we do, you are loving uh, beyond our understanding. Father, I pray you'd help us to trust that more, that that would sink into our hearts as well as our heads. Help us to fix our eyes on you and to see um, to see ourselves as, as you see us, not to define ourselves by our failures and not to believe the lies of the enemy which we refute in the name of Jesus. Help us, Father, to learn and grow from the areas we fail in. And please um, free us from the fear of failure, from the fear of others. Um, and today and for the rest of our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.